Um, so again, good afternoon and welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. Um, my name is Max Delaney and I'd like to thank you for joining us for this afternoon's forum, Public Art and the City, Creating Meaning by Disrupting the Everyday and Enhancing the Human Experience. Presented by the City of Melbourne in association To begin, I'd like to formally acknowledge the Boonwurrung, traditional owners and sovereign, sovereign custodians on which we meet along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to elders past and present and to all First Nations people who join us today. This afternoon's discussion focuses on public art in the city, an opportunity to consider public art and its role in a metropolitan environment such as Melbourne, as well as a specific location such as South Bank, and in relation to a diverse range of community and cultural contexts more widely. As recently announced by the Lord Mayor, Southbank Boulevard and Dodd Street are set to be transformed over the next three years, finishing in 2020, as the City of Melbourne reclaims 2.5 hectares of roadway and footpath for open public space. Community and stakeholder feedback has indicated that public art was an, to be an essential element of this transformation. So tonight is an opportunity to consider what public art might mean and what it can do for the city and urban space. With our panellists, we'll have the opportunity to consider the definition, role and changing forms and character of public art, the question of audience and community and who public art might be for, and what is expected of public art, its role, responsibilities and relationship, as well as to the community of artists and cultural practitioners who support and critique its outcomes. Public art is a contested category, as are the meanings and identifications that public art produce. As we've seen most dramatically in the US this last week in relation to the removal of Confederate monuments and other civic memorials. This afternoon our speakers might reflect on the successes, tensions, processes and opportunities presented by existing and future public artworks in relation to local, international and Indigenous contexts. We might also consider how public art can intervene and disrupt the everyday as the title of tonight's talk suggests, how public art might contribute to the public realm promote civic debate and conversations, conceive of new communities and ways of being in public space, and how public art might create meaning and significance sorry, to enhance our civic and human experience, marking, elucidating and amplifying the experience of place, history and belonging. At ACCA, we're very excited about the proposed development of the South Bank Arts Precinct and the significant commitment that the City of Melbourne is making to the public realm and the role of art within it. So we're delighted to have the opportunity this evening to partner with the City of Melbourne in presenting this discussion, which allows us to reach and welcome each other's communities and share our resources in a collaboration that reiterates and reflects the thesis of our current exhibition, Greater Together, which we hope we've had a chance to see this afternoon. I'd like to thank Kay Glamuzina, Manager of Arts Melbourne, Amy Barclay, Public Art Program Manager at Arts Melbourne, Linda Roberts, Senior Public Art Program Manager, and Olivia Allen for their collaboration and initiative in developing this forum, and also my colleague Kate Long and the team at ACCA. It's now my great pleasure to introduce our panel members for this, for this afternoon's discussion. Charlotte Day is Director at Monash University Museum of Art and will be chairing this afternoon's panel. Charlotte, over the past five years, has led the development of an outstanding agenda-setting series of public art commissions on Monash University's Clayton and Caulfield campuses. Professor Rob Adams, AM, is Director, City Design and Projects at the City of Melbourne. 
Rob is an architect and urban designer who has played a visionary role over the past 30 years in revitalising Melbourne through the implementation of comprehensive urban design strategies and processes. With a strong commitment to the character of the built environment, the creation of public open space, and the important role that art and culture play in the creation of civic space. Jeff Greenaway is Director of Greenaway Architects and maintains a strong engagement with public art and the city through a great variety of roles, including his recent involvement on the Curatorium for the City of Melbourne's Biennial Lab, his involvement on the selection panel for the Tanaminawait and Malboihina Memorial, and his role as Deputy Chair of the City of Melbourne's Indigenous Arts Advisory Panel. And Vari Claffey, an independent curator based in Dublin, who has an impressive track record of exhibitions and of commissioning ambitious, complex, site-specific and community-engaged projects. Vari teaches at the National College of Art and Design and also at the Institute of Art, Design and Technology, both in Dublin. We're very excited to welcome Vari to Melbourne in her recently announced role as public art strategist for Southbank. Will you please join me in welcoming our panellists this afternoon? Thanks so much, Max. Um, I'm very happy to be back at ACCA. Haven't got to do a talk here for a while. Um, so the format for this afternoon is we're all going to present just very briefly, about five minutes each, um, some key projects or key concerns that we think might be relevant to uh, today's panel. And then we'll come together and have a discussion and then look forward to you joining it as well. Um, so with the PowerPoint, where is that happening? Who's in charge there? Me. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, that's me. Um, so I'm just going to talk very briefly about uh, what I've been doing at Monash. And one of my special colleagues is here today, Jocelyn Chu, who's from property, building and property at Monash. And we've really developed this program together. So I'm really pleased she could be here this afternoon. So over the last few years with um, a general kind of renewal of the campuses has come the opportunity to develop a public art master plan which sits under the more um, broader master plan for campuses for Monash. And within that we have a little percent for art budget. I wouldn't say it's the kind of percent for budget we actually really want, Jocelyn, isn't it? But we're working on it. But what we've been able to do is um, take those funds and put them into context where we think an art project might enhance um, the public realm in some way. And each occasion, I think we've tried to approach it slightly differently. So in terms of what I think we've been able to achieve is something, it's organic, it's developing every time we do it, but we don't have fast rules, more we have a sense of wanting um, to achieve an inspiring and engaging environment and also a tone across the campus that shifts so that what might work as a public artwork in one area might be a very different treatment or idea of public art in another. We've also thought about how to work with artists and sometimes we involve a kind of very traditional, I suppose, commissioning process where we might work with an artist and a fabricator and develop a particular project. 
Other times we've involved artists as consultants actually on um, urban and landscape projects. So rather than defining that the project will even have an artwork necessarily, it's to involve the artist's perspective, their skill base, and um, introduce that into the kind of planning and development of um, the public realm and buildings on campus. So that's been exciting to be able to look at different models. But I did want to start with Ronnie Van Hout's work, Dayton, which was one of the first ones we did. In a sense, because it's your more classic um, uh, public work, it's kind of monumental in a way, but um, it could be moved, it could be recited, it kind of has its own integrity as a sculpture. But in effect, what's been so special about this work and how it operates is its relationship to its immediate environment and then how the kind of university took it on in different ways from what we could have anticipated. So we've got a little image of Ronnie, Ronnie's Ronnie Dayton. But then um, up the top right, that's actually when I went into the Westpac Bank out at Clayton the other day. I'm like, oh my God, what is that on the wall? And it's a wallpaper of Dayton. And then the bottom left is actually the um, front cover of Lot, uh, Lot's Wife, which is a university magazine. And when it was coming to exam time a couple of years ago, one of the students had done this bit sad looking Dayton, suffering from the stress of preparing for exams. And then um, to the bottom right, you can see that Dayton has actually become the mascot for the university. And that came from up top down saying, you know, we love this work and we really want it to have a kind of presence in welcoming and um, encouraging people, you know, to come and study at Monash. So in that sense, it's developed a life of, a life of its own and, um, you know, that's something that's actually been really exciting for us. second project is by Agatha Gosnape and it's called A Scheme as a Blueprint for Future Development Projects. And this um, was developed quite differently. So she was engaged as an artist consultant and worked with TCL Landscape Architects on the kind of biggest public space, public realm space on the Caulfield campus. Um, there was no anticipation even of whether it would have a defined element to her work or whether it would be, um, you know, there would be anything tangible actually from the engagement. But as it turned out, she worked really closely with TCL on the um, design development for the site per se. And then a certain part of it was, um, had a kind of temporal dimension to it as it might be redeveloped sometime in the future. So it seemed like a good space to be able to do uh, kind of temporal, semi-permanent artwork. So what is really nice about her piece is that it's a sports facility, so you can come on campus and play um, basketball, volleyball, table tennis, and something else that I leave out of the picture. Um, but it also has this other overlay, and that's of um, different kind of psychological exercises, well-being exercises, group dyna dynamic exercises. So through the text, and the kind of graphic, it introduces another and a more kind of emotional, quite a different layer of information and engagement in the work that, um, you know, was actually quite a thrill to be able to achieve. And once we did, and some of the reactions to it, we realised that, um, you know, people are very unfamiliar 
with having emotionally intense words in the public realm. So we actually felt like we'd achieved something pretty good. The third work I want to show is um, by Open Spatial Workshop and it's called The Anthropocyte and it's basically um, the rock to your right and there's actually three of them. So we commissioned OSW to work with um, landscape designers Rush Wright and geologists for the um, design of a new geological garden at Clayton. So it's a teaching garden, so most of the rocks in it are from places of Victor in Victoria and they have very particular stories t to tell about um, the history of um, geology in Victoria. But they have produced um, an anthropocyte rock, so it's imagining what the rock from, I think, I'm really bad with numbers, but I think it was like two million years in the future would look like. So it's made from bones, computer screens, plastics. Um, and it was, I suppose in some ways, the work is very um, discreet and discreet in terms of that you could easily overlook it, but also its size. But in terms of the level of experimentation and engagement with the geologists and with um, art making practices for the artist, it was really big. So it's just, I suppose, a different approach. And the last one I'm gonna show is we've just unveiled, and we're actually, this is only four of five in the new car park at Clayton. So it's interesting with these projects because we'd actually had um, originally an idea to uh, produce a new work in this amazing new teaching and learning building that's going to be unveiled later this year. But the nature of that building was that there was already a lot of architecture happening and just couldn't find a spot that felt like there was room for art in it. I mean, once it's open, I might go back and think differently, but I just kind of couldn't... I just didn't know how to make it work. But there was a car park happening next to it, and I thought, well car parks are ripe for some kind of engagement. So in a sense, what's nice about this work is that we could invite five artists and um, we could involve like a kind of broader range of artists than we probably had been able to previously. But also that each floor then becomes, you know, its own distinct space and um, hopefully as well as kind of engaging people, especially um, audiences, coming to events at Monash as well as staff and students, so it kind of has a broader appeal. But, um, you know, hopefully it also helps with wayfinding when you're in a big car park and you just have no idea where you are, which happens to me quite often. Um, so I'm going to leave it there and I think hand over to Rob. Can I grab the little machine? Yeah. Thanks. <coughs> Oopsie, maybe not that way. Will it? The few slides I selected uh, was to try and give an idea of how, over the last 30 years, we've thought about art and the city. And uh, the first one was we've tried to, on all the major projects, work with artists. And the slide at the top right-hand corner is at the Turning Basin, where Melbourne started. And in 1985, that was a car park, um, and there were a whole lot of roads going through there. And 
we decided that it was necessary to re-establish the memory of where the city started. So we convinced uh, the council that they should spend a whole lot of money and dig a hole back in the river and, and move all the cars out. And at the same time, there was talk about pulling down the viaducts or putting them underground. And you somehow knew that was never going to happen. I mean, they're on Coot Island silt. Um, if you're going to put them under, by the time you got under, you'd be coming up again into Flinders Street. So the challenge was to say, how can we make them appear as something that's attractive, rather than, as you can see in the you know, top right, ha uh, right hand, yes, um, as they did in, in, in the 1980s. So a very simple task of just lowering the ground level um, exposing the pile caps and putting them in bluestone, and then working with an art curator, Peter Stitt, to say, how do we use art to um, try and give definition to this uh, important structure in Melbourne? And he came up with a number of possibilities for installations. So you see the prows that sit on the water that are memory of the ships that came up, and uh, the scar trees were added later because this might have been the first place where they were meeting with the, you know, the First Nations. Um, and then this blue neon light, and he just said, if I actually put a blue neon light along the whole of that bridge, light it up. And I can still remember the night that we turned that on. I was walking with Rosie, and you know, it was one of those nights where it was only going to be dark at 8 o'clock. And I said, um, let's go across to South Bank and uh, just have a cup of coffee. And we went across, and then at about five to eight, I said, we better walk back now. And as we were walking back, they turned it on, and the water just went blue. And I still get that thrill of how simple it is to use um, design and art to change the perception of things. And so since then, we've used um, artists on all of our major projects. Uh, the and repurposing is very much a theme of uh, what we've been doing for 30 years. I mean, we've taken 80 hectares of asphalt out of the city and converted it to footpaths and uh, open space. And they were talking about knocking down the Sandridge Bridge, and we said, no, um, let's actually repurpose it as a, a place where bikes can go across and uh, you can walk across and tell the story of migration. So as you walk across the bridge, there are representations of all the nationalities that arrived late to this country. Um, and then you've got these pieces that used to move on the bridge and used to park on one side. And the only piece that's on land is the indigenous piece, um, which represents, obviously, um, you know, the First Nations that were here. So using art as part of major projects has become very much a way uh, that we work. The next was, uh, as the laneways, um, became an important part of Melbourne and uh, part of what happened in the 1980s with the strategy was to say let's not look to other countries and other cities for what's important. Let's look to our local city, uh, look, let's look to Melbourne and make the best of its characteristics and clearly the laneways are something we've been very lucky to inherit. They were built out of um, speculation in the 19th century because of the really large size of our blocks and as they divided the blocks and speculated to make money, they created these lanes and arcades. And the, the laneway commissions were temporary works that went in, sometimes for only a few months, and were used to start to 
get the people of Melbourne to visit places that maybe they hadn't visited before. And, um, you know, they went on, uh, I think it must have been for about 10 years until the laneways became so popular you didn't have to advertise them anymore. And I think artists played a huge role in their temporary installations, making these pieces alive, places alive, and then the, the art just disappeared and uh, it went back to its original form. This one is, is part of, uh, I suppose, the informality of art that happens where you don't expect it to happen. So this happens to be the water wall in the city square, uh, which has just been demolished. And um, the, we turned the water wall off, uh, uh, I think it was about 2001, 2002, because we had those 11 years um, of, they called it the millennium drought, but uh, uh, most uh, people, I think, recognise the onset of climate change, and we just didn't have enough water for the fountain. So the water wall is a very, used to be a very fine structure um, uh, that hugged the water to the wall and could be damaged quite easily. So when we turned it off, we covered it in uh, plywood. And uh, about two days after we'd put the plywood on, one of the chaps who worked for me came running into the office and he said, uh, they've graffitied the water wall. And... Uh, I said, oh, uh, so I said, I'll go and have a look. And I went down and it was Ash Keating. And Ash had done this beautiful piece on, on the water wall. And uh, he said, what should we do? And I said, just leave it. And uh, so Ash actually added to it over a few nights um, and uh, eventually got to adding a bit of a yellow, which actually made me very happy uh, being my favorite color. And um, so we then thought, well, why not? Why not actually allow the water wall to be commissioned uh, in this period. And so there were a number of wa works, what, this is one of them, that were actually you know, commissioned and the, and the uh, water wall became a place for art for a while. So those incidental things that you can make happen in a city without talking too much about them. And uh, one of the ones that I suppose where we located now with the vault, uh, if you go down Swanson Street at every tram stop, you'll just see little pieces of the vault, which we did with Ron Robertson Swan. And we never told anybody about it, we just did it. And they just sit there in the tram stops. And it was about trying to bring something back as part of the memory of what happened in that city. The last one, which to me is a very personal thing, I suppose if you grew up um, and went through high school uh, in, in the late 50s, early 60s, um, at some stage someone came to you and said, are you going to do art or are you going to do biology? And you went home and asked that question and your par parents always said, you'll get a better job if you do biology. And to me, um, that's always resonated throughout my career that we've devalued the arts to such an extent that we actually advise our children not to do the arts because it's not seen as being uh, something you've got a job in. So. I've really tried to think about how do you address that? How do you make art important? And um, it's nice that Bari's here tonight because in her hometown when I was visiting there and they were changing Temple Bar, I came across a thing called the Ark. And the Ark was where they uh, allow young primary school children to engage with um, art and for very nominal fee, uh, all the children in primary school are engaged with the visual arts and music and the rest of it. And we brought that back and it became art play in Birangma, which 
uh, we were in the process of designing at that stage. And to me, uh, and this was the second part of that, this was Signal, uh, which was over at the Sandridge Bridge. And this was for adolescents who maybe wanted to experiment with technology, etc. So the, the top of the signal box is actually switchable glass, so you can actually use it in the day as a window, but switch it at night as a screen and you can project onto it. So that engagement with young people in art uh, became very important to us and uh, I think art play and signal were part of that. So those are the things that I suppose cover off what I've been interested in over the period. I don't know why I'm so nervous. Yama, or Wamanjika, as mob down here say, um, I'd firstly like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we're gathering, uh, those of the Bunurong and uh, also the Wurundjeri, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. So th this first graphic captures something that um, intersects with this idea of cultural continuity. And so the graphic that we see here, we used on the Cree Heritage Trust at Federation Square. And what it is, is it's a reference to a welcoming ceremony where we burn the leaves of the managum as a way of welcoming one onto country. And so this is in fact an abstraction of the, the leaf, oh sorry, the blossom of the managum. And so within the Koori Heritage Trust as one sort of traverses up through the building, we're welcomed by this graphic uh, which is played out into the space. So it's a very sort of subtle reference and connection uh, to country. And so I've been particularly interested in recent times around this notion of intangible heritage. And so what's particularly intriguing for me is demonstrating this understanding that Indigenous culture um, reflects a connection to history, but there's an understanding that Indigenous culture is in fact um, you know, not static. It's ever evolving and changing and adapting. And so consequently, you know, reflecting this within our in, uh, environment, particularly within the built environment. And so this is a, a project where we were involved in with uh, the Koori Heritage Trust and Open House Melbourne. And so this map we used on the obverse side of the standard map which was um, used within the program. And so what this was telling us was really that there is in fact an Indigenous presence that resides within this place. And so even within a sort of concrete jungle of a major metropolis like Melbourne, there is that connection. And so here, this was... Um, essentially advertising a walking tour that I organised through the city. And so what that enabled us to do was really start to tease out this notion of how Indigenous culture is actually infused and embedded within the DNA of the city. It may not be obvious, but it is in fact there. And so consequently it becomes a useful mechanism to also pass um, on knowledge and you know, through this process of knowledge exchange we can start to have a conversation. And so we can continue on with that oral tradition of facilitating uh, a dialogue with um, that connection to First Nations. Um, as was stated earlier, I was involved in the, um, the panel for the assessment for the Tanaminawe and Malbohina Memorial. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, it essentially is the first uh, memorial within the city of Melbourne which talks to the frontier walls. And so this tells a story um, of that sort of interface with indigenous culture and colonial culture. And it also talks about the first public execution that occurred within the city, um, which was two Aboriginal men. Um, and so this for me was quite a, 
a sort of transformative experience in the sense of how immersive it was in terms of how the artist um, you know, started to unpack the complexity of this story through a public intervention and start to demonstrate an understanding of the sort of the subtlety and nuance that resided in that story. And so, you know, there were a range of different approaches and this was probably the most challenging in many ways. And, and I do sort of pay credit to the City of Melbourne in terms of its forethought to actually follow through on our, you know, unanimous decision as it turned out to select this particular um, work. So this is by Trent Walter and uh, Brooke Andrew. And so, while on the surface it looks quite sort of playful, it's, it's a, you know, some form of uh, landscape intervention within the city, and then you say, oh, you know, there's, there's a swing and, you know, there's some plants and you know, brightly coloured elements there as well. So it's, it's, it seems quite nice. But then when you start to look at it and look at it closely, I started to get that shiver up the spine when I realised that, you know, in fact, this, this is not a, uh, a swing, but this is, in fact, the gallows. Uh, and this is not a seat, that is a tomb. And so consequently it starts to talk to a, a deeper... But it, it starts to do it in, in a way which is um, sort of creeps up on you. And that also that ability to interpret the story through the, the text which is included within those um, um, newspaper stands as well. Auspus through an app, um, also an exhibition which ran in parallel to this, became a really uh, useful mechanism to understand uh, some of these layers of history and meaning that, it, that reside uh, in the city. Now this is another project that I was involved in uh, recently. This is Nagara Place at RMIT. And so within the hustle and bustle of a city campus, what we wanted to do there was, for the Indigenous unit of the university, was to connect uh, to culture in a deep way. And so the genesis of the idea was the notion of the seven seasons of the Kulin Nation. And so consequently here, what we started to do was we dispelled some of the preconceptions of how we connect to this place. And so the, the palette of materials in which we use was from this bioregion. And so we used plants and, and a sort of palette which was essentially plants which were used for medicinal purposes, um, used for uh, ed edible plants as well, plants used for weaving and the like. And you know, coupled in with this, we also wanted to showcase this connection to language. And so what we do know is with the diminution of language, we start to lose our connection to culture. And so starting to understand that in many respects, um, there's a sort of bicultural experience that we all should in many ways res respect, but also embrace and celebrate because we are all uh, connected to the oldest continuing culture in the world. And so this particular space is now used as the sort of um, the welcome to the calendar year for the university and so we have the traditional owners come out on country and uh, perform ceremony. And so within this space, um, as a backdrop, uh, commissioned a piece of uh, contemporary Aboriginal art. And so this was done by Arawa Groves, a Gomeroy artist. Uh, we also had an Aboriginal uh, landscape designer and an Aboriginal architect. And so this you know, synergy of Indigenous creative input into the process became a real important one. And so through this indigenous placemaking strategy, as, as we call it, um, we started to infuse connection to culture, particularly around how we celebrate artistic practice, particularly of the southeast. So starting to move from this sort of default position that indigenous culture is homogenous, but it is quite specific to this place and understanding the artistic practice that we employ and embed here is quite distinct and different from, say, the central desert. 
And so here we started to use motifs which are very common to the southeast. So the graphic on the ground plane which wraps up surfaces vertically and, and horizontally is essentially um, connecting both to my country which is uh, Wawan Kamilaroi where we're looking at dendroglyphs which are essentially carved trees. And so here we can see the line work which is the, the sort of artistic expression uh, indigenous culture and started to use that as a, as a vehicle to start to celebrate a connection um, to artistic practice. And so for me these become really interesting opportunities and demonstrates that uh, indigenous knowledge systems have real tangible value. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Tifa. I'm, I know I've been introduced already, but just to say I'm, I'm very happy to be here in Melbourne on Bari. Nice to meet you all. Um, my career in visual art has kind of in some ways gone backwards from a normal route in that a lot of times people would work independently for a number of years and then come into institutions and start working in institutions. And so I, mine was more or less the other way around. I began working in um, an institution a little like Monarch, a, a university gallery called Douglas Hyde Gallery in Dublin, where I was the administrator. And then between two other institutions, eventually taking over, running a gallery that was within an art centre. Then moving to the area that, that you spoke about um, in Temple Bar in Dublin, that was an area that went through a whole series of development to become a cultural quarter within Dublin with attendant difficulties, but largely a tremendously successful project. So I, I left all of that and uh, after my daughter was born to do some research into curating to teach, I opened up a, a very miniature, what I called a gallery for one project. And so over the next six years, that's what I did. I researched a history of curating and made exhibitions independently. Um, and what I wanted to just talk into were some projects that I did um, coming out of all of that research at looking for a way to program a little bit differently. The climate in, in, in Ireland at that time in galleries was that there was a certain amount of, uh, not exactly an antipathy, but a certain amount of people feeling very confronted by what contemporary art was. And it was something that I really wanted to address. So I went back into looking at the history of how museum, museums functioned. And when you look into that history, s some of the design of the way that museums behave is designed to do precisely that. It's designed to a certain extent to make civilizing kinds of behavior. So I was really interested in how that related to the experience of artworks and whether there wasn't a way to, to alter behaviors around what might otherwise have been seen quite difficult artworks and to see whether that actually affected the reception of the work. I wasn't intending really at that point to make public art programming. I was intending more to, to look at behaviors around existing works and other ways to exhibit existing works. And I started with film because it was a really accessible thing to do. I was able to get posted to me a tiny little object that actually would open out into the most enormous object that you can imagine. So I, would, I took it into this field um, in County Leitrim. With this, you can see the sleeping giant in behind it. And it's the field of an artist um, who lives in Ireland. Property became so expensive in Dublin that all of the artists moved out to, to Leitrim, to the countryside in Leitrim, which was... It was very cheap to live there at the time, so I always refer to it as a kind of rural Berlin. It was incredibly active. Everybody had two or three jobs. You'd be a baker and an artist. Or, and it was incredibly productive in that time, what people were doing. So this is, this is 2008, before the crash. Um, 
And I worked with the architect who designed this beautiful mirrored house that was wedged like a tooth into the countryside, but an incredibly modernist shape. But because it was mirrored, it sat beautifully into the landscape. And he selected a site for me on that land that's just disappearing in there in the bottom um, and made me a series of raised platforms that were built by local youth using, um, because they had no insurance, um, using... Um, just materials that they could use without any power. So we couldn't get any insurance to do them, so we used a thing called a whacker. <laughs> we, we whacked the site down. And then we built a huge screen so that that whole area became, you know, we referred to it as a, as a, as a gallery, like it was a white cube, it was also a black cube, and it was also what I called a greening room. And so I did this the first year, not intending to do anything, pulled together a lot of funding, um, and did it as a one-off, and everybody said, what are you going to do next year? Somehow the nature of it just seemed to feel that it would, it would extend. So in the following year, I started to um, commission other works. That work is by Dennis McNulty. It's a work made by chance. So there are different, different um, lengths of yellow material. I wanted something that was really different from the landscape, and he would make the next section of it based on the roll of a dice, so the sculpture was this kind of a large organic sculpture that ended up sitting in that space for about a year. What you can't see are the, the, the circular platforms that we used to stand on so that we wouldn't be sitting in full bog swamp. Um, they were kind of raised, and they were used sometimes as performance stages and then sometimes as just spaces to stand on. The other two examples are um, when I moved to Gracelands, that festival, I got invited to, to, the, to a biennial to take over a space within the city, which is a milk market that's kind of occupied at the weekends. And we switched all of, those are fish market stands. Um, and they're just the tape that they used to wrap those together and turn the whole site into a kind of a gallery within the city, just reoccupying, turning everything into a plinth, reorganizing how the space actually functioned. And that's at the end of the garden in the Irish Museum of Modern Art, a very formal garden, um, hardly used. And the new director at the time just wanted that to, the feeling of it to change. So I just started with, again, building a screen down there. We, we screened a Helioid to seek a film. Lucy Andrews, very young artist, moved in with a whole lot of water coolers that she took out of the offices in the space, and she dumped um, little highlighter pens into all of them so that that color of them just lifted up and changed over the whole space. So it was, very, it was kind of quite provisional and very different behavior from how the museum had functioned up until that moment. Those are just some, just to talk about commissioning. I'm sorry, the quality of that slide. Um, ways of commissioning works. This work over on the right-hand side is a work from Isabel Nolan that we brought into the milk market and made a platform. The, the space was completely slanted. So we built this wooden platform for the work. And it's really beautiful work. It's based on an artist called Mary Lieb who um, was in a psychiatric institution, wasn't recognized as an artist, and cut up her sheets every night to make these incredibly elaborate artworks that were also a barrier so that no, so the doctors couldn't come in in the morning because they would be afraid of, of uh, traversing this incredibly precious space that she'd made over the night. And Isabel really wanted to make this work that would be, be able to be broken down and taken into different kinds of situations. So it's ended up that work being iterated and reiterated and reiterated. She's taken it everywhere across the world. And, um, but it was that idea again of that being able to sort of backpack the work and take it wherever she was going. Was, that was the kind of commissioning um, agreement that I had with her. And then, you know, just again, this seemingly quite awkward and hostile situation. How do we show video works 
uh, aside from large-scale filmworks in a forest. And so Ronan McRae built this, those, this very odd armature that hung out of the trees that's just a metal framing. And we screened the video works from there. We, we actually ran a cable down across the land so that we could run, like, like a festival, so that we could run these kinds of things. And what, this other work uh, in the corner here is a work by B. McMahon, and it's that particular year's exhibition was called Folly. We were looking at the idea of a fo an architectural folly as a conversation piece, and she made this inflatable folly that, it, again, is kind of a transportable, large-scale sculptural installation. And then moving into a building. Um, this is an exhibition project, a large exhibitionary project that I made very close geographically to where the other exhibition was. Um, in, a, in a town, beside a town where the gallery was quite contested, the, the local council were wanting to, to change the existing contemporary art gallery and move it back into much more tourist-based space. Um, and there was a feeling that the town was unwelcoming to contemporary art. And having spent a lot of time there and done a lot of programming with contemporary art, I really felt that not to be true. So I just thought we really need to look at, at changing how we program into those spaces. So we took over um, five rooms in what was an enormous VHS factory that was on the banks of a river. The site's really beautiful. It also contains a beautiful house that had a sort of contended, contended history. It was almost torn down, was saved by the Land Commission in 1949 because it's of an incredible architectural interest. And the factory was seen not to be of such architectural interest, but I was immediately drawn to because the space is, this space is 65 meters high, enormous, enormous spaces, completely unused for 10 years post-crash and post the crash of VHS. Um, so this is a work that's made out of what we found in the factory when we originally came there. It's a column, a 65 meter high column of unrecorded videotape that just, and because the windows are open, uh, whenever the wind blew through, the whole thing would just kind of bellow out, like a really beautiful, very steady, very so solid kind of column and birds would fly through it. And behind it is this work, this incredible work by Siobhan Pasca, who took 11 olive trees and strapped them down through the walls of this space that became this massive auditorium that we used. Um, and the trees shook over the course of the exhibition so that their shadow lay down on the ground and it was a, a very sort of mournful, symbolic uh, gesture towards peace. She uses olive trees a lot to talk about war and peace. And this work is by Michaela Dwyer, an artist who a lot of you may know. It's called Square Cloud Compound. And it's attached in Michaela style by stockings, you know, tights that are bought in the local pennies or, or a very cheap store. And it holds up all these tiny little detailed artifacts, beautiful, um, tiny little indicators of the space that she's in. So they, she works that work very locally as well, even though it's this quite extraordinary, quite magnificent work. Um, and she, was, she, she realized that the floor underneath was this high green color. It was black when we came in there. So we had a huge renovation um, of all of those sites. And this, this is also designed to be like a tented city full of like little cubby holes and a kind of shelter. And it's, that idea of shelter is a project that I have as an ongoing theme that's running through these projects. I'll just show you one more. And again, we pulled in that work of, of Alexandra Mears. It's called Plain Landing. It's been shown all around the world in various different um, sites of important cultural significance. So it's, she's, she's um, shown it for a day at 
outside the Eiffel Tower and at various sites, and it's never really stayed in any site long enough. So there was a lot of engineering involved in keeping it, keeping that up, because it's got two different kinds of mechanisms inside it. It's, it's aviation engineering, um, and also some engineering around um, a hot air balloon. So it's this kind of match of things, and it can never, ever, ever touch the ground or, the, or it collapses. So we had to work out a whole load of systems whereby that wouldn't happen and a whole load of circuit breakers. And those, uh, these incredibly scale paintings were made on site by a very young artist called Lara Morrison who came and just lived. The, the, the really nice thing about being able to work on this site was that we were able to have a very long lead-in time, a huge install. And she made those in panels with wax before we had any electricity in the building, using a barbecue at the front of the building, melting all the wax and making all the paintings. And they're basically, they're essentially portraits of the trees that surround that area, these quite extraordinary paintings. She, she wrapped them around the walls of the site. They're still there, they're still in situ. And the, this other work, the video work that we just made into, I mean, a very large screen installation is by this incredible Croatian artist called Igor Grubic, and it's a documentation. You may have seen these, these uh, works. They're, they're anti-fascist former Yugoslavian monuments, and he just documented their return back into nature and they're being taken over by goats and birds and changing use. So that kind of monumental thing is being absorbed back into nature. And he's made this beautiful 50-minute film with the music soundtrack of those words, of those uh, works being reabsorbed, being taken back over into the landscape. So, thank you. Thanks, Barry. I think we might come up and join each other, if that's all right. Thanks so much. We've actually um, already covered quite a lot in terms of the breadth of potentially, I suppose, what a discussion about public art can include. So I'm just wondering, are there things that it can't include, Rob? Uh, you know, do we need a definition of what should be considered public art or... Perhaps not. Uh, hopefully not. Um, I, I, I have great difficulty putting parameters around anything about the city. And uh, I, I think I enjoy uh, the, the fact that these opportunities arise the whole time. And um, people uh, look at my job and say, you're an urban designer. And I say, no, I'm actually an urban choreographer. Um, it's more about how do you bring energy and talent together to realize something. So there, there's very little of me in this city, um, but there's a lot about you know, the, 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 the energy and the people you've brought together to do you know, things that are important about the place. And so I would hate to have a definition about what public art is, because I don't think we've even got close to understanding it. And you know, with, with Jaffa, I mean, I, I battle to think um, how we truly represent the importance of this country through art to the First Nations. I don't think we've got there you know, at all yet. I think you know, we, we're in a difficult space around the edges uh, and there's still a conversation we've got to complete. I mean, that's in terms of, I suppose, whether there are distinctions be, to be made between art and life or not, um, but in a practical sense, you know, if you are going to have a public art program, is it, is it essential to have artists involved in it? You know, is that, is that something that's important? 
Would you like to speak to that yes. first? I think, uh, no, I think it's essential to have artists involved. It's, it's, what, it's how artists are involved in it. And, and I think one of the things we, that's come up a lot is, is, the, is artistic thinking and artistic strategy making and uh, how that can actually be used, that whether it's making specific identifiable separate objects or whether it's making suggested behaviors, as you say, uh, whether it's ways of navigating things or whether it's ways of uh, rethinking, changing behavior, all of those kinds of things. I think art, you know, artistic, not just problem solving, but imagining into other ways of doing things, that, that can be so, um, I mean, I hesitate to use the word useful, but it can just be so inspirational in terms of how things can function and what can be done. I think that's an important, like, important point in terms of how or to what degree art should be instrumentalised or not um, and what the role of a public art, whatever that might be, is. I mean, uh, historically, it obviously was much more to do with a commemorative role or a... Um, which, as you showed, Jeff, it can actually still be incredibly important and powerful, but obviously more recently the types of projects often have a different goal in mind, um, especially the idea of activation is very big. I know I've had to kind of struggle with that in the past sometimes myself. I mean, are there, you know, things to be wary about in terms of what youth art might be? be put to or not? Yeah, well, it, it takes many forms. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, well, yeah, the way we view art is, is, is quite contested in many ways. And, you know, there is that sort of, you know, preponderance of endeavouring to pigeonhole things. And, you know, I'm quite sort of bemused often in the context of, you know, Indigenous art, so-called, um, how we try and disentangle it with a connection to to culture, and so, and and I would argue that they are one and the same. They're, they're hand in glove. You, they're inextricably linked, and and there's no way of necessarily being able to separate that. But that said, I, I think there is obviously a role to play um, to amplify experiences and to facilitate connections. And and I think this this idea of understanding that. You know, art in many respects is, is people-centred because without having an audience who engages with it at some level, then it, it's very difficult to sort of stand alone in and of itself. But consequently, we can start to develop new narratives in terms of how we understand where we are as well. Do you want to um, talk a little bit to that too, Sari? Um, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's... there's one of the things that strikes me when I was thinking about today is, is how dis the, dis the distinctions are really blurring about how public art behaves and how art is behaving and how museums are behaving. And so that sort of moment when a public artwork was doing something very distinctively different. Um, and I, I, I think that some of the ways that public art's behaved is that it's coming in towards a museum and, in, and sort of inflecting how things behave within a museum in a really different way as well. And to me that's incredibly exciting that there's a better that there's a better flow or that the flow can increase between how museums function and how um, and how the world functions and I one of the things that I've been talking about a little bit in relation to this project is is the idea of works with which we can have ongoing what I'm calling long-term relationships that they sort of build um, that they're relational to the surroundings in a really different way they're relational to the 
to our daily lives in a very, very different way. And that deep engagement is something that's kind of hard to achieve outside of outside the public realm. But it's very exciting within the public realm and opens up all kinds of possibilities. I think, I think also if it can be uh, seasonal, I mean, um, uh, Sky Haldane, who's one of our landscape artists, uh, actually um, designed this beautiful landscape in Royal Park, and it's right. on the seven uh, Aboriginal seasons. And, and to me, that's a powerful thing that, you know, when you go there over the course of the year, you're going to see this place in a different uh, light, and, and it's going to have different meaning. And um, some of the works I like are those ones that um, are temporal, they're not permanent. And uh, uh, when we were doing Swanson Street, um, I think I'm going to get the name right, uh, Spock did the, uh, the piece in front of the library with the blue stone bit of the, the cornice that had fallen off. But before he did that, he actually built it in sand on the corner of Swanson and Collins Street. And on the first day, it was perfect. And on the second day, people started to poke at it. And by the fifth day, it was just a pile of sand. And, and to me, that was actually a very interesting experience because people started to think about, you know, what, what can we do with art in, in this street? And um, so <laughs> sometimes that, that nature of things, that they're not always there. Um, the temporali temporality too can yeah. um, make it seem less authoritative, mm -hmm. you know, on occasion, can't it? I mean, that's when we put something into a space and we kind of say, this is now here, and it's to do this or that, yeah. Yeah. you know, that's a very different feeling to something that kind of appears there and then shifts and change and then disappears sure. later. Maybe, and, and I think there's room for both. Uh, but uh, sometimes the gravitas that's given to things that are permanent, um, they might have been important at the time, but as we're seeing in America, maybe not so important in this time. Mm -hmm. And, and also this nature of, of developing a patina over time. And we tend to get sort of caught up in the preciousness of, of the artefact and the object um, and understanding that um, things can sort of evolve over time uh, and there can be a certain smudginess. It, it doesn't have to be so exacting. There, there can be something which is a little bit unresolved or, or not fully uh, detailed. And, and so we, consequently we can start to look at it and perceive it differently to you know, that sort of precious... And basically yeah. that's going to happen whether you like it or that's not right. because yeah. it's, right. so it's just the nature it. of that's things right. in the world, like the context for them changes and they yeah. change. I mean, I think it's interesting with the example um, of, you know, the monument that was to be taken away, like there are other ways that you can address that kind of history as well, like reframing that actual monument rather than um, it suddenly disappearing, you know, is another option that... Um, projects that I participated in with Agatha in Sydney uh, involved a walk through the gardens in front of Arch of New South Wales and out in, towards another monument. But it went past one that had a very big plaque that said, you know, Captain Cook found Australia. And it was like the way it was framed was even bigger than you'd ever kind of seen it before. You know, and in effect, her project helped amplify the problem of that plaque. Yeah more than if it had actually been removed. Cool. Um, well, yeah. similarly, in the Biennial Art Lab, uh, Sibling did a great installation at the Queen Victoria Market site, and there's an obelisk to Batman. And uh, some of the text inscribed on that obelisk is essentially saying that uh, there was no people here beforehand, this sort of terra nullius view. And so they essentially immersed and, and enveloped the monument. And then 
um, focused on the sort of lens to read that text and then uh, beg the question, uh, you know, is this in fact accurate, and then use other texts, indigenous texts as well, in and around it, and also different um, viewing points. So you were actually sitting up higher than the obelisk and looking down on it, so you had a, a new perspective of, of what this all means. So these are often really sort of powerful ways to engage without this notion of erasure. Mm -hmm. it, it enables you to start to confront these issues. And I also liked um, what you said, Vary, about um, trying to create a space or a platform or whatever it is that has a degree of openness in it, so perhaps it develops its own usage or inhabitation or whatever. I mean, is that something that you're particularly interested in? Yeah, really interested. I'm really interested in, in, in a way that there's a kind of developing dynamic around something that it grows up into the city or around the city or the people grow into it. And, you know, I always think about, I always think about there's, um, there's w the works in the fountain outside the Pompey Dew Centre that are kind of that relationship to them and my relationship to them. I, when I, I really loved the Tangley and really just despised the Nikki de saint Fal. Um, and then that absolutely, through, the, through the, all of the history of my understanding of what she was doing and what happened then, I've, like now that whole relationship has turned on its head. And, it, you know, it's not even just that, but it can be to do that with this... I mean, some of the things that I think about when I think about public artworks or artworks in general is that they're somehow outside of the grid of obligation of this thing that we have to fulfill every day, that they somehow sit outside of that. And, and being pulled in and out of that all the time is actually an incredibly productive, very dynamic kind of exercise when we watch those, when we watch materials do things they shouldn't do or be affected in ways that they shouldn't be affected or sort of mirror back to us, I think, you know, um, that senses of identity or senses of place or altering senses of place so that we can you know, that there's a something else that we can hold on to that doesn't have, it's not locked down to associations that are somehow um, can drug and kind of, kind of keep us pulled down into the everyday. How important do you think um, a kind of level of community engagement or understanding of the audience who might be, um, you know, receiving the work, how important is that to the work's existence, the process to towards you know, making a work. Do you want to? I think that's always <laughs> really del uh, difficult. I mean, when I first arrived in the 80s, we used to engage with the community by having a town hall meeting. The trouble with a town hall meeting is the same 20 people turn up every time. And uh, so it's, it's not an engagement with the community. Uh, it's engagement with a small sector of the community. So I think it's become more meaningful um, with social media and other forms where you can broaden uh, the definition of community. And I, I think that's making it uh, easier for us to understand the complexity of our communities and then start to try and engage them on different levels. And not, not all of it will be through public art, it'll be through a whole lot of other mechanisms. But. Um, uh, to me, that's uh, a work in progress. I mean, every project we go into, um, we're challenged by um, who do you actually talk about mm -hmm. to this particular project? Um, you know, we, we've uh, designed parks and people who live around the parks will say, um, don't put a barbecue in because other people will come. Uh, and you sort of think, oh, so what's the definition of park? Um, uh, so it is, it's a really difficult uh, place to be uh, as to who are the community because in Melbourne we've got a, a community that grows to one million a day and, but they're all visiting. Uh, and then we've got uh, you know, 200,000 who actually live here. 
Uh, and what's your trajectory going forward? <laughs> I think I heard a big number <laughs> recently. Well, I think the whole city is, is going to become uh, huge. I mean, if you think Melbourne's going to be 10 million by uh, 2050, we're not even halfway there. So the city we live in is going to be, um, I think, a, a really exciting place in, in 33 years' time, only if we actually have the courage to build it in the way that we need to build it, rather than just carry on spreading it over the landscape mm -hmm. and, and destroying some very important land. And as it grows, the importance of the public spaces within it become increasingly, increasingly yeah. you know, more important. Uh, They're absolutely vital. Yeah. I mean, if you think, if you said there were only five things that uh, make good cities, um, one of those would be what I call the public realm. Because um, that's where we live out our, 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 our civil life, I mean, outside of our, uh, our buildings. The others are, are things like mixed use, so you don't have to travel everywhere and climb in a car to do anything. Uh, density, I know it's a vexed issue. What, how much, what's good density, what's bad density? Connectivity, so you don't have to climb in a car to do anything. You can actually get to where you want to go. Um, and the other thing is local character. That this is about this place, not about some other place. And uh, I think those five things, if you can bring those together uh, in our cities, and the public realm is a large one, then you'll get a city that works. Chief, with your map that you showed, um, I was interested that the, uh, the underlay that you added to it still had a kind of, nearly still looked like it had a gritty type form. Whereas in my head, I just imagined something that was quite removed from that. I mean, is there, do you imagine like if we do have this footprint of public spaces, you know, that have this like absolutely precious value, can, do you have a vision of what, they should like or look like or how they could be connected that would relate to you know your own knowledge my sense is that f form of map will evolve over time so that was sort of a first cut if you will um, and sort of recolonizing the city to give a different view of it and a, and a new lens I think is um, quite an exciting proposition um, and I, I think also that it's really about revealing those layers of history and meaning that reside um, and that sort of deep history and, and understanding that, you know, in a sense it, it's trying to um, sort of read the landscape and hear the landscape, so engaging uh, with all the senses to understand uh, that importance of place. And, and sometimes there are elements which talk to our history which aren't particularly significant but they are actually the places where um, there was a a fermentation of perhaps activism or, or where people congregated but the places themselves aren't particularly of great um, meaning but it's the stories that reside from that and so these become I think interesting points and you know talking to that notion of the public realm they, they are very much the sort of the lungs of a city and so we kind of do need to have that ability to to breathe and and not feel constrained by the places which we live and uh, work and so consequently, these become important moments that we start to experience through, through our cities. And do you think, um, are there, apart from the example that you already showed of the project with Brook and Trend, which was, has a very specific um, lineage, basically, in terms of, you know, a particularly traumatic history here, are there other types of um, stories that you think should be shared or kind of connecting 
much to a, like a longer history, a more ancient history that is relevant and that all that you can see happening? Are, you know, are there examples of that that you think work? Yeah, I, th I think there's a tension between the desire to hark back deep in time to also understanding that the Indigenous um, you know, demographic is very young. So how do we give voice to contemporary constructions of Indigenous identity? That's kind of an interesting aspect because the, the, the numbers in terms of the population is, is climbing. It's a very young population. So consequently, how do we start to draw those connections to the now? And I think there's a real optimistic story to tell there because it, we can start to embrace uh, a new narrative which moves beyond the sort of deficit um, discourse to something which is really engaging. And, and I think it's, it's fair to say that Indigenous uh, people and culture kind of punches above its weight in terms of how much it actually impacts uh, on our cities and, and places in, in quite often subtle ways. Um, and there is often the tendency to be loud and proud and, and that can be really powerful but it's often the things which creep up on you which are very subtle which can actually resonate even deeper and longer. Um, do, you, do you think that's always, you know, with the emerging, uh, you know, younger um, uh, talent there, do you think that's always without reference back? I mean, I find in my work I'm always looking back to go forward. Um, you know, those reference points, uh, I can't let go of what's back there. Um, and and uh, sometimes it's not apparent uh, in, in artworks, but I mean, there was a piece... Uh, that I did with Indigenous artists would no, no longer exist. It was about codifying land. You know, the only way we understand land is once we, you know, divide it up, put some pegs in the corner and, 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 and you know, put a monetary value on it um, and, and put, against that, put that against, uh, you know, how the Indigenous communities, the Aboriginal communities actually look at land. It's completely contrary. But there, there's, a, there's an interesting tension there, you know, um, Everything we do is about dividing, you know, whether it's the pegs or, or the road through the country, the white line, you know, the barcode. It's all this codification of uh, land, which clearly uh, the Aboriginal cultures didn't do as much, uh, although there were boundaries um, between the different mobs. Yeah, and, and invariably there's the demarcation through topographical features, you know, waterways and mountain ranges and the like. Yeah. But I, I think that the... Imp important um, aspect to consider around this is is how do we start to uh, reclaim some of those connections which have been broken in many respects so there, particularly in the southeast which was the first sort of interface there is this sort of process of reclamation of knowledge and understanding and so that's where the innovation is really starting to happen and, and I'm seeing particularly among the sort of young cohort of practitioners um, they're doing some really engaging and innovative work because they are grappling with that complexity and re-establishing those connections, facilitating that difficult you know, conversation around how do we project you know, identity within the built environment, for instance. Um, that's a tough challenge, you know, and, and everyone grapples with that, I, I think. We, shall, we should talk a little bit about the South Bank precinct <laughs> before we open it up, just not too much, because it's in process. Um, do you want to just give a bit of a... Yes, uh, well, I mean, for, for those of you who don't know it, um, it's simply uh, South Bank uh, Boulevard, which runs from St Kilda Road through the river, is a, um, a, a large traffic 
uh, area with a median down the middle. Uh, it used to have 30,000 cars running through it. Uh, now it has 13,000. Um, the change came uh, with the Commonwealth Games where we convinced uh, the government to close the end of South Bank Boulevard and bring, build uh, Queensbridge Square. And by closing that, you actually reduce the traffic, which enabled you then a few years down the track to say, well, you no longer need all this asphalt, so let's actually turn it into a park. And that's the stage we're at. Um, it gives us an opportunity uh, to have a, a linear park, which is two and a half hectares, running down the, su uh, the southern side, so it'll be the sunny side of that space. And it runs through a whole lot of different communities. It starts up at St Kilda Road and it starts with the artistic community, then it goes past uh, the recital hall and uh, the ABC, and then you've got uh, a residential community of low rise, um, and then you've got a residential community of very high rise, and then you arrive down at the river and the casino. So what does this park actually look like? And, and uh, I suppose that's the uh, stage we're in. And, and it's going to have many identities. Uh, but hopefully it's also got a consistency of feel that uh, when you arrive in it, it starts to give what I think this area needs, and that's a mental map of where you are. I think what's happened to the South Bank is when they uh, stopped uh, Sturt Street from running straight up to Princess Bridge by building the art center, they cut people's mem uh, mental memory of the easy path that was made in first settlement to come down here. So this space tends to be lost in our mental map of Melbourne. It's not part of the grid. It's a sort of funny space in behind the art gallery. And in, in a way, what I'm hoping the park will do will, will start to anchor those institutions and uh, uh, communities along the length of that uh, park and uh, therefore start to allow the rest of Melbourne to understand the importance of this area because uh, it's got some of the most important uh, organisations in the city, a fantastic array of not only communities but art organisations. And uh, so that's what we're trying to do. Uh, the easy part's thinking about the idea. Um, the difficult part is you know, giving, giving it a reality. Yeah. And I suppose this is why I'm excited about Vari, uh, Vari's involvement, because I think there is a whole lot of questioning that the, the arts and creative community can bring to these dilemmas as to how you represent them. Um, I hope it doesn't just end up looking like this bit's a plaza, this bit's a playground, this bit's, you know, so it it's got to have... So it is meant to have a holistic... That's right. Yeah, and kind of unifying role Ab to Absolutely. Play, yeah. And it's got to tell us. It's got to tell a series of stories. Uh, not too much to work with, no, is no. it, Ari? <laughs> Small task. <laughs> <laughs> so you're here for a couple of weeks doing a kind of reconnaissance and um, yeah, meetings and research and just the beginning of kind of setting setting up some parameters for 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 reading further in it and, and uh, discovering more about the area. I'm also living just in in the guild, so just there. I mean, I think the strongest thing about this area as well as this kind of idea of feeling, the feeling of the space and how it is right now is something that really needs um, augmenting and changing and the, the feelings and behaviours of how the space, how those uh, interspaces in between the institutions, because the institutions are doing it very well. Mm. It's how that's kind of reflected back out into a locale and a neighbourhood that really needs some, and there's, and there's a great willingness to do it. It's like a lot of just strategizing around how those things become apparent. Sure. I mean, there was, a, there was a, an important work, um, and I think it was by Robin Boyd, uh, that used to be here, which was a series of dishes that water flowed the out. The fountain. Of, the fountain, yeah. 
Um, and I was having a discussion with Tony Penner tonight about, uh, you know, you asked the question, should the fountain come back? Yeah. And my feeling is no, uh, but the idea of the fountain should come back. So what is water today in, in the 21st century? Because it's different to what it was when Robin Boyd would have done it. Even when he did it, though, that was wind-generated, wasn't it? Yeah. That water yeah. fountain. And it was like three pools, and it went down to the river That's near right. where the arts centre uh, is It is, now. yep. It yeah. was where the arts yeah. centre is, yeah. And apparently some of those dishes are still somewhere. Are they I'm sure they apparently are. Apparently I'm sure they are. Out on someone's property. But in terms of... Con I mean, it did have a environmentalism to it, I think, I that mean, perhaps could tap into, you know, probably a more contemporary approach. I think so. Site. I mean, there was, it, it, from what I've seen, the photograph is quite monumental, and I sort of started to think of Brasilia um, in a funny sort of way, and I don't think we need that. I wind, think. wind, wind <laughs> generated is cool. Very cool. But also understanding, you know, this whole area would have uh, been billabongs uh, previously. And, and so, you know, that, that river narrative and that mm -hmm. connection to water and the confluence of the salt water with the fresh water and, and understanding those crossing points. And, you know, there's a really interesting uh, story to be told there, uh, which, which we can start to elaborate on and amplify and, and celebrate. And, and these become really interesting ways to sort of reframe and recast how we connect to a place. And so, you know, that's, I think, a real challenge yeah. uh, in many ways, but it, it also provides a real opportunity to embed it in, and infuse it with a, a particular sensibility. But those are the conversations I'm having a lot with Sky around how, around how that gets reflected through landscaping and whether and how to work with artists through, through the landscaping project and use different kinds of strategies to, um, to make those things function in a really different way and feel really, and tell some of the, like, tell some of those stories without being didactic or um, just to, to sort of begin or bring those into contemporary discussions because I think there's a whole discursive layer, public discursive layer that's missing from here that could be really very rich very quickly. There's also, um, you know, a very practical thing about, um, you know, with increased inundation that we're going to have with climate change, how do you yeah. stop the overland flow yeah. so you don't get flooding? And, and you know, they're, they're actually hold in, holding in containment of water. Uh, could become part of that story. So, you know, you've not only got a, you know, the, the memory and resemblance of the billabongs, but, uh, you know, you've got this real uh, um, challenge of, you know, we, we've concreted over this whole place. Uh, you know, so when you drop water on it, it just all flows to one point. How do you slow it down? And, and what does that, uh, you know, look like? And how can you use it creatively? And, and also that interface with the creative heart of Melbourne. Yeah. You know, that, that's a real great... Um, you know, challenge in terms of how one can sort of capitalise on that sort of intellectual energy of, and creativity that resides in, in this place um, from so many different media and, and disciplines. It's, it's a real... Um, it, that is, that, I mean, that is that's a key that's element a in, the, critical in putting part. the strategy together, yeah. is looking at that, yeah. I think we should um, open it up in case anyone has any questions or comments. Or We've probably got ten minutes. across at the VCA and I often walk around here and it, you're, you're right, it's, a, it's kind of, there's all this creative work going on behind very tall brick walls. Um, I was interested to hear your thoughts on, there's been a lot of talk about art, but I wondered if you'd like to talk about how socially engaged art 
so um, community-engaged art, so not just community engagement in the process, but in the art production, might fit into the plans, and also performing arts, so embodied art. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really good question, and I think it's one of those questions around what, what being in a precinct like this has to offer, because you've got extraordinary, it seems to me, ex an extraordinary situation where there might be crossover and cross-thinking um, and a lot of strategizing around those kinds of things in a living way in this area with the locale. And so uh, the initial thing would be to really amplify that those kinds of less formal, less hard design spaces. Um, because you've got what you, what you have around here is a lot of stage doors, a lot of back entrances into things. Um, and it, it's, you know, you, it seems to me that you could really build up a lot of community engagement, repurposing, something like testing grounds, the way they've occupied that space that there's a lot of opportunity for those kinds of things to kind of grow up and, and be nurtured within this area. And we're looking also at a lot of the ways that the, I mean, a lot of the organizations are thinking, it seems to me, very well into, into access, but it's something I'm going to think a little bit further into with them, for sure. Hi, Terry. Hi. Um, there's a lot of very influential people in the room and it makes it very difficult to ask uh, you know, questions that may need to be asked. Uh, so maybe that's, the, maybe, maybe that's the comment. That's, maybe that's all that needs to be said, because, partly because uh, with regard to publicness, you know, contestation and difference of opinion and actual the capacity for discourse and not being rejected from discourse is possibly what makes public. Um, yeah. hav having said that, um, you mentioned uh, something about art as a process of civil, like designed to civilize us. I think there was something like along those lines. Oh, no, it's that was different. It wasn't about art. Per se. It was about art, arts institutions and museums. Okay, so and the no, spaces this is, around this is where it like gets interesting, actually, because because like yeah, so so the historical model of it. Very historical. Okay, so is it possible that because later, later there was also uh, something about the um, anti-fascist model, like a monument. Is it possible that a new form of fascism might include art that looks like art but isn't art? I'm just, I'm just wondering. But anyway, just. Uh, I think only one part of that uh, um, am I prepared to go close to, and that is that um, I've never thought of any of the spaces that we've created as being finished, and. Um, the challenge you have if, if you're working with a city is that at some stage you're going to have to make a change. And you know within yourself that you, you haven't got to the stage where that space is completely resolved. And I'll give you some examples. Um, the, the city square, when it was designed, didn't have any grass in it. Uh, and within a, you know, a, a couple of months of us finishing it, uh, we just got this feedback, you know, there's not enough place to sit and there's nothing soft to sit on. So everybody said, oh, you can't change it, it's been finished. I said, no, of course you can change it. And we just went in and changed it. And, you know, um, I think we're constantly evolving these spaces. The, the scar trees at the Turning Basin weren't there. They actually started off in Swanson Street. Um, and, and then, you know, when, when their run in Swanson Street was finished, um, people said, what are we going to do? And I said, well, you know, the Turning Basin is where these two communities would have met. Maybe that's where they should be installed. So I don't see anything that we've ever done is finished. Uh, you know, uh, 
it, it, it's just evolving. Uh, and so we get, we're going to miss a lot of discussions along the way. It's inevitable. But I'd hate to think we've finished on the discussions, that we, you know, someone can't re-enter that debate and say, you know what, you, you, you actually stuffed up here and you need to think about this. And when we actually close our minds to that commentary, th then we're in trouble. I guess given that a lot of the artwork um, that people access in this precinct is within, within institutions, how the public realm will play a really different role in terms of people um, not necessarily purposefully seeking out that engagement with public art but coming across it um, just as part of their day-to-day -day lives. So I think that's, uh, I guess, a key opportunity that, that we have through this project. Yeah, and I think there's an opportunity here to sort of groom the landscape and, and sort of invert some of those cultural institutions to pull them back into the public realm. And I think, you know, that activi you know, activism of, of sort of animating the, the edge and connecting and pulling things through um, may be a, a strategy which could be um, considered. If we don't knock another four or five holes into the stables along Dodd Street, we <laughs> failed. You know, for the heritage people to say you can only have one entrance is bizarre. You've got this public space that's going to be created along there and you could have just externalised that whole institution. And Heritage says, no, you can just have one entrance. What a load of crap. You know, the, we, we actually cut two holes in the town hall. I mean, that, that's a Heritage building. But because, you know, there used to be windows, there needed to be doors, you needed to externalise. So I think there's a lot of externalisation that needs to happen on that campus. It needs to open itself up to the surrounding area. This area suffers from everything being internalized. ACA needs to lift its skirt. You know, we, we, need, we need to actually, you know, there, there, are, there are a whole lot of things here that are just introverted and uh, that, that makes them less exciting. So yeah, there needs to be a whole series of mechanisms for things to tur turning, facing another way. Oh, <laughs> you know, I, don't, I think Ron would have a heart attack if we said we we're going to move it again. Uh, <laughs> but um, I don't think Vault has moved for the last time. I was going to say something briefly and first of all to thank you all for the presentation which was incredibly um, stimulating. And I guess one of the things I'm interested in is maybe public art not being a category in that we know it, that in fact public art, and I think this is one way that BCA, I come from BCA, can contribute to this, yeah. is that actually I think of it as art mm -hmm. that uses the public as its medium. Now that might mean people or it might mean being located in its context or it might mean an experimental site where students come out where we do and play and experiment with the site, which is kind of answering your question, yeah. Sky. And so I'm just wondering about, um, it might be where we take parts of the public back into the institution and so it's a kind of dialogue. Yeah. So I'd love to hear your perspectives on that. Thanks. Well, I mean, that's definitely so, something that I'm really um, that I'm really thinking about in relation to all of this is how is is how the institutions begin to, to do what they do and do a lot of times what they're doing so very well and how that makes conversations that can include um, collab that can include include moments of like 
informal moments where the beginning of collaboration can happen, where there can be more informality in terms of the, the uses of public space, where things can be deregulated to a certain extent. That is something that we're looking at is, is how regulated spaces may be yeah. and how some of that could be lifted. So I, do, I mean, that's within the scope. I, I, like, I don't want to start thinking into specific strategies because I don't have them no, yet. I'm course, still researching, yeah. but it, that is part of the thinking yeah. with, around this project and has been for some time before yeah. me. I think you can take that thinking further and, uh, you know, I was having a conversation uh, today with Rosie about urban design and urban design is now people saying, oh, it must be a profession. And I'm saying, no, actually it's a context. Yeah. Um, what we should do is break down these professional barriers. You know, I'm sick of the faculty of architecture and the faculty of landscape architecture and all those faculties that are powerful. They are hugely powerful. You try and actually penetrate those and change the way that they think about things, and, and they get really paranoid. Um, you know, when we were working in Copenhagen, I saw the Faculty of Architecture destroy the stuff that Jan Gell was doing. Just actually, within months of him leaving, they just destroyed it. Um, so we need to get to the stage where we realize that most of us are living in cities, and the city is a context that has all these different forces on it. And the players are architects and landscape architects and artists and creative people. But they shouldn't come from their faculty. They should come from an understanding of how a city works. And if they can be the different layers that actually come together and work together, we'll get a much richer outcome, rather than we all come from our little institution and plop our thing down and then go back. And, and the, the language is important. And, and I often reframe it around this notion of placemaking and, and moving beyond the silos and, and demarcating roles. Because it's a, you know, in order to do anything within a city, it's an interdisciplinary approach and it's a collaboration, a true collaboration. And so consequently, we are making places. And so this placemaking strategy and mindset and design thinking is, is really what's sort of informing uh, a methodology towards a solution. You know, I, I also want to reiterate those thanks and um, to thank Vari, Jeffa, Charlotte and Rob. Um, Jeff earlier on mentioned um, you know, the important role of revealing layers of meaning um, from in a particular site and the role that public art can play in doing that and also to engage all the senses. And I think the third ingredient is actually the role of the public itself. And so this conversation has been, I think, really important and um, I, it has been stimulating and um, we want to thank you all very much for, for joining us and thank the City of Melbourne for initiating the forum and um, we hope we can continue this um, discussion um, in the months ahead and the period ahead and there are big opportunities both at a local level, a state level, um, there's of course all the tunnel activity happening and art opportunities that will come out of that and um, so there's, you know, it's, it's an important thing to, to be really working on and considering how public art might engage with the city at the moment so thank you very much. Thank you.